Is post-liberalism already here? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Eric Schleser. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Eric Schleser. Eric is a professor of political science with a focus on political theory at the University of Amsterdam's Faculty of Social and Behavioral Sciences and the Amsterdam Institute for Social Science Research. Eric, welcome back to The Curious Task. Thank you. It's really uh, an honor. It feels like that you've asked me back and I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, no, it's it's great. I, I remember... Uh, we talked about a lot of things in our last chat together. I think might come back up here. And at the end of that chat, I listened to it the other night. Uh, we were saying to each other, hopefully we can continue the chat one day. It looks like we're doing that now. So I'm looking forward to it. And as you know, Eric, we, we base of each of our episodes and discussions on a theme or question and go over the answers and conversation take us. So our question and theme today is, is post-liberalism already here? And I think really this is a good way to frame a conversation around where the liberal democratic promise is at, where it's going, and some of our thoughts around those types of themes. Um, but before we get too far into that, I sort of want to define our topic and, and get a little bit more of a sandbox border around some of the many things we'll discuss inside it. So when, you know, we're hearing a lot about... Uh, after liberalism, post liberalism, you know, whether the liberal democratic uh, promise is strong enough to sustain itself now, uh, if we're moving ahead from it, all, all the, those kind of things. Um, but, but when people say that, whatever word they use, and I'm going to keep saying post liberalism in this conversation, but when people put their thumb on that kind of thing, what are they really talking about, at least in your view and in your studies so far? Um. So I actually think that's a that's a very challenging question, because um, um, because there um, the people who use it um, tend to come from different parts of the political spectrum, um, um, and um, uh, so it's it's just, uh, so it's not entirely intuitive. But I think uh, if we step back, uh, take a bigger picture, I think we could see what the rhetoric is supposed to do, and from that infers infer some of the goals. So the, the first thing to notice is that the idea of post liberalism implies a kind of linear or progressive view of history, right? That you have one period, and then you have another epoch, and then you have another one, and um, and for liberals, uh, speaking as a kind of skeptical liberal myself, uh, that's a bit tricky because a lot of liberals believe in progress. And so if another group comes along and says, hey, uh, we're speeding by you on the road to progress, wherever that goes, um, they seem to be like in a driver's seat. So I think uh, rhetorically, Labeling oneself as post-liberal is a clever move because a lot of liberals believe in a notion of progress and different kinds of progress. I think um, uh, often post-liberals uh, reactivate tropes of that that pre-exist liberalism or that are actually already familiar critiques of liberalism. So there's a whole bunch of uh, people that are very 
likely to say that liberalism is technocratic, it's a rule of experts, um, it's a depoliticized um, project. Um, there's also quite a few people that are post-liberal who will say things like that liberalism doesn't have a real account of the common good or shared uh, morality, and that makes for bad politics. And so what political life really needs is a common good. Uh, often these are Catholic thinkers of some sort, uh, uh, integralists as well. And then others are really people that feel like that liberalism uh, has emphasized the atomic individual, the isolated individual, the individual that believes in rights, but not in community and not in uh, collective duties. And so what you have is a whole bunch of actually quite familiar 19th and 20th century criticism of liberalism being reinvented and repackaged with an um, a new set of um, uh, tropes and a new set of uh, political ideas. Now, I think one thing that um, is very noticeable about post-liberalism is that it really uh, does two things, I think. It, res it responds to a kind of triumphalism that we saw after the end of the Cold War, all the way up to, let's say, Brexit and the election of Trump. Right. In that period, liberals and critics of liberalism would say things like uh, there's no other alternative. Liberalism is the only game in town. The whole the whole world will become liberal. Um, uh, this was the end of history. These kind of ideas were very much in the air for a whole generation. And what we see post liberals do is figuring out ways, both theoretically and politically, how to challenge that idea that there is only one inevitable um, political way of living. Um, and um, uh, of course, at no time in history was liberalism the only political project, right? Even in this period where it was triumphant, right? Um, there were um, um, Islamists, there were, uh, uh, let's call them state capitalist uh, communists. Um, there were whole kinds of political projects out there that were in no sense uh, properly liberal, but um, um, but that were often like treated as well. Eventually, they'll become more and more liberal, and we'll all become alike. Um, I have so far said nothing of the American political scene because in the American political scene, it's also quite clear that a lot of egalitarian commitments that also are associated with liberalism are also under fire in all kinds of different ways. Right. Um, Outside of America, what's interesting is, is that both liberals often present themselves as the true egalitarians. I don't think that works as well in America, um, uh, although, of course, everybody claims to be a Democrat in different ways. I mean, de democratic in the sense of political Democrat, not the Democratic Party. Um, right. So I think... Um, um, what we have is a confluence of a set of really uh, very striking political events. And then 
uh, people's theoretical criticisms of the status quo being uh, yeah reanimated and repackaged um, to to make them fresh again, and a lot of them are theories and approaches that. If you know the history of 20th century non-liberal thought, are actually they, they pick up on quite familiar um, uh, themes and criticisms of liberalism. But often the kind of people that bring them back together, they new, do new stuff with it. So uh, I do think there are a bunch of serious post-liberals. Um, um, but I think what combines them is their hatred and irritation and loathing at liberalism rather than a unified set of commitments. So I think if the post-liberals were to find themselves in the intellectual majority, they would have to figure out what they really stand for in a way that right now as a kind of negative movement gets obscured. Yeah. And and actually, on that exact note, I'd like to go back to something that you said sort of toward the beginning of that excellent context setting, which is, you know, you sort of ended with Thank saying you. they'd have to figure out what, what they sort of, you know, all believe. But at the beginning, I think you said something that's very key to understand this bucket of post-liberalism, which is that there's post-liberalism from many different angles. It seems to me in both casual and direct ways, we can even, in my mind, I've been observing, make a, a, a more clear distinction now between some capital P progressives and 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 liberalism, lowercase l now. I mean, they're, they're starting to tend more in that direction. We could talk about that, for instance. Obviously, there's the uh, the nationalist conservative movement, but but is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Like all yes. ends of the, yeah. the so political maybe, spectrum. Let's let's let, and maybe let's be specific. Indeed. So um, the last few years, I've really actually been. Um, trying to read into uh, people who are not liberalism, in part to try to figure out what my own liberalism really amounts to. And um, so you have a bunch of theorists that are indeed uh, nationalists and a nationalist uh, conservative slash nationalist authoritarian, but also, um, particularly in a place like Britain, uh, nationalist left, right? So-called mm-hmm. Lexiters. Um, and, uh, and sometimes nationalist conservative really means nationalist religious, right? right. In other contexts, nationalist uh, uh, conservative really means something like um, traditional hierarchies, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, military, country, family, uh, loyalty. Um, and there doesn't have to be religion in there. It can be, but it need not be, right? Um, and um, uh, so that's one group of, of, of people. They have another group that uh, Kevin Vallier, who you sometimes have on your show as well, has Mm -hmm. studied. And those are a Catholic integralist. And what they believe really is that uh, there is a social common good. This common good is knowable. Um, This common good is especially knowable by church hierarchy. And it makes the state uh, a tool for pursuing this common good. Right. So that's a... um, um, a view of political life that sometimes is incredibly at odds with uh, nationalist conservatism because the Catholic Church is 
by its very nature, a cosmopolitan enterprise. It's not, it's compatible with local forms of nationalism, but at bottom, you know, it, 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 it's very universalistic in many ways, a true rival to liberalism's cosmopolitanism. And in fact, you might argue liberalism gets them in part from Christianity and the Catholic Church, right? So uh, people who believe that, uh, uh, Adrian Vermeule in America, very influential. My friend Tom Pink in in Britain, also very influential. They have a, they have views like that, but their own views differ quite dramatically. Um, uh, Vermeule dips deeply into a twentieth century theorist called Carl Schmitt. Um, and Carl Schmitt really thinks that at the end of the day, there's one sovereign power. Uh, where somebody like Pink really sees a division of labor between the church and the state. And so how you pursue the common good, even if you believe that it should be pursued, uh, will be very differently under different guises of uh, a theory like that. At the moment, um, that doesn't really get hashed out because when you're in a minority, you usually focus your criticism on the dominant ideology and the do what you take to be the dominant worldview. So they're mostly holding their fire against each other, and they're all basically criticizing liberalism or what they take to be liberalism um, 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 for its perceived and sometimes true failings. But it doesn't mean that they actually share in the same same. Uh, same goals. Um, to give another example, Catholic teaching has quite a bit of commitments related to the uh, welfare state and social cohesion. Um, that's often quite at odds with the kind of more right-wing nationalist uh, conservative post-liberal ideology, which definitely likes a big state, but doesn't like welfare, right? So there's a, a complex set of tactical alliances where people are basically treating um, their common enemy as a reason to ally with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and and that's actually an excellent point. The end of that train of thought is a perfect uh, jumping off point to my next follow up question. It comes it comes right after that, which is basically as you've outlined they, uh, in even even more detail. A lot of these folks are coming from different angles and perspectives, but it it seems to me um, that a lot of them. Um, spend more time talking about as you said the failings of liberalism and like liberalism as it is so to speak and where we're at now in the current moment rather than spending time with let's let's just say liberalism theoretically i actually don't think that's a uh, negative point i actually think it's why some of their views might actually need to be tackled and taken seriously but but is do you um we would never be able to prove this but do you feel that observation has any water what i just said they spend a lot of time yeah. talking about the failings and practicalities of liberalism yes yeah, so um, I mean, um, I think that's true. I also think that there is a tendency among them to offer rather, in when they are interested in the political theory or political philosophy or the history of liberalism, to offer rather reductive accounts of it. Um, so um, Hazoni uh, makes Locke the main sort of archetype liberal, but then makes Locke into a kind of very weird kind of rationalist. Um, uh, others um, uh, treat Rawls as the only liberal worth taking seriously. And if they can show that 
the social contract is really not what Rawls wants it to make it out to be, then liberalism is dead, right? So there's this kind of um, insistence that liberals have a tendency to flatten the universe and not to take all kinds of important social bonds seriously. But then in return, when they actually describe liberalism, they flatten it rather dramatically. I think this is also true of people like uh, Vermeule, who really reactivates tropes from Carl Schmitt, often very interesting and important quotes from Carl, uh, from Schmidt, but at the same time, lots of liberals spent a good part of the 20th century responding to Schmidt, and in some ways or another, the fact that that happened never enters into the conversation. So there's always, a, a so far at least, uh, in my view, a rather static uh, responsiveness on their part. Uh, that might change, but I also think, and you've put your finger on this, I think because a lot of post-liberals are very invested in the present political moment, for them... Uh, let's call it careful armchair theorizing and being charitable and fair to your opponent. That's not what's on the table right now. They're in all kinds of different ways, see an opening for movement building, in some cases already quite effective movement building. If you think of in the United States, the way in which uh, the Republican Party has become a vehicle f for appointing certain Supreme Court justices, um, um, uh, in Britain, uh, the, the kind of anti-trans movement has been very effective in transforming uh, public debate, even among British feminists. Um, so there, um, it doesn't matter for if your political movement that you haven't thought out the theory and also the theory of your opponents. Um, it's. It is for liberalism, however, it's an unusual situation because in the past, often many of the critics of liberalism came from a highly intellectual orientation. If you think of Marxist and anarchist critics of liberalism, you know, there are hundreds of years of very serious scholarly and also polemical activists theorizing mm -hmm. about yes. the class enemy, right? In many ways, uh, the post-liberals uh, are not quite there yet. That I, I feel rather confident in saying. And in many ways, when they're, uh, when me qua liberal feels like they're on target, what I really am hearing is very smart 20th century thinkers being cited without being acknowledged that this happens. So for instance, somebody that I've been reading with interest is a guy called James Burnham, um, mid 20th century uh, uh, post-Trotskyite who ended up in the um, uh, uh, conservative, you know, Buckley orbit. Um, but he wrote a bunch of books that are really uh, mid-20th century critiques of liberalism, also claiming, by the way, that liberalism was passed, and uh, which really was about how new elites could take over a political life and um, the managerial state and those kind of things. And in many ways, if you listen to what uh, post liberals are 
particularly in North America, but I think it's uh, radiated out to Europe as well. What they're really upset about is that a certain kind of credentialed elite seems to be in power, and they want to displace that credentialed elite. Um, and right. so even the terminology of elite, which liberals don't really use that much, um, <laughs> the post-liberals adopting a, you know, a, a kind of sociological term that, well, you know, really uh, uh, is also activated by populists, um, they, they really are quite uh, obsessed with uh, who's in charge and what are the roots into that elite. Um, and, you know, if you follow it on Twitter or social media, it's like a day in, day out theorizing of why the perceived credentialed class, how they how they unfairly have grab power and how they rule the world. Right? Now no liberal I know wants to like defend credentialism for its own sake, right? Um, and often um, um, can be quite critical of that in the name of all kinds of moral egalitarian commitments. But suddenly, from the point of view of post-liberalism, liberalism just is a defense of a credentialed meritocracy, purported but actually fake meritocracy. I mean, that there should be square quotes there. Um, that kind of rhetoric and that kind of uh, making that the linchpin of your analysis, that's really, you know, that's that's familiar, but it had not been as active for about a century. So that's really being reactivated in all kinds of ways um, that, you know, there's new evidence, new whole new job descriptions, uh, obsession with diversity officers. Uh, you know, so there's a whole bunch of... Uh, combined uh, grievances with the status quo that then get melded together in an attack on universities, on credentials, um, on diversity, on on a woman in power, and you know before you know it, you have a coalition of of uh, things that are wrong without really a well thought out theory. Okay, what the hell should replace this then, and what would be the sources of legitimacy, let alone morality, that could replace it? Right, because usually when you think of a system that values credentials, the alternative is either nepotism or or pure power, right? And somehow that doesn't get theorized because in a way we don't really, we're never really told what the real alternative is supposed to be. And I think um, um, that makes the 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 reading of post liberalism at the end rather frustrating and boring but there are i do think i don't want to just be negative about it for instance i'll give an example um uh Yoram Hazoni, uh, who I know also, you know, because we've written together in a scholarly vein on David Hume years ago, he, in his recent book on conservatism, he really makes a point of saying that traditional American conservative critiques of the family have been unwilling to listen to uh, feminism's critique of the 20th century nuclear family. This is its terminology. And a nuclear family basically leaves 
the woman isolated in the home and uh, and is a kind of on his view a recipe for social isolation and social frustration and he actually credits feminism for pointing this out his view then is well actually what we really need to do is create much larger much more extended families where the family really becomes a business enterprise that's a collective enterprise um, where uh, where you kind of imagine a, a storefront and behind it is the family compound and uh, cousins, nephews, uncles, um, they're all part of this broader enterprise and older generations take care of younger generations in a complex um, neighborhood. Um, the moment you start thinking about this vision, you see, yeah, it has actually rather attractive features to it. Um, on the other hand, when you then think about, well, what are actually people's, let's call it uh, revealed preferences, what are people doing? Well, they're not actually massively living with their families. They end up, you know, trying to leave. And in many ways, they don't leave because they can't financially afford it. Um, in fact, most evidence suggests that people are staying with their parents because they need to save money for housing, uh, not because they're buying into this new kind of traditional family. Um, and so when you think about, well, if as a collective, as a state or as a, a country or as a city, one wants to pursue Hazoni's project of incentivizing what he calls the traditional, uh, so not the nuclear, but the traditional family, it would require massive changes in public transport, in, uh, in zoning laws, in how we organize the economy. And the moment Hazoni were to be forced to spell that out, and also much higher taxes, I might add, um, he would lose a lot of his coalition allies that he can bring together in the anti-liberalism status quo argument. Um, right. I'm not saying that it's a hopeless argument, but just on this one, this one dynamic uh, actually would require massive changes and a way to get from here to there that's completely under-theorized, it's under-argued, um, and it's also actually not actually made explicit. Um, um, so I think um, if that's the leading edge of post-liberalism, then a lot of other extra work has to happen for it to become like a well-developed ideology where different parts would hang together. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that actually bridges nicely into an observation of, of mine that I wanted to throw your way, and, and you let me know. But yeah, it, it seems to be at least some a feeling that I have is that although there are some uh, committed, let's say for the sake of argument, like, you know, like for instance, theorizing theoretical post-liberals, like people who have, you know, thought of this kind of thing. I mean, like even like, you know, whether people like it or not, you know, fascism is still around. That's a thought out non-liberal, you know, com complete way, way to go. Some people think is a way to go. But so you have these kind of theoretical thought out type of non-liberals or post-liberals. But I've also seemed to encounter uh, in, in my own travels, either people just casually out there socially wise, or even, you know, on the in the intellectual sphere, sort of like almost the best way I can describe it is sort of lamenting giving up liberals. Like they feel like something is not working now. 
and that liberalism can't work and there's alternatives to it. But it's not that they have some sort of theoretical dedication, even on principle, to the idea that we got to move away from liberalism. They just feel like something in liberal democracy or what we know as liberalism is just not feasible or not working. It seems there's a spectrum there in my mind. I'm not sure if you agree. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's fair. I mean, um, you know, so far we haven't really talked about a lot of hot-button culture war issues that motivate. But let's take one where I think you and I both feel passionately that uh, cosmopolitanism and relatively open borders um, and immigration are good things and worth yep. defending. Right? Yep. And I actually think that from the perspective of the history of liberalism, that's really one of it's really one of our core common commitments. There are nationalist liberals and there are close border liberals, but on the whole, this is a very broadly shared commitment, sometimes in the name of human rights, sometimes in the name of economic growth, sometimes in the name of economic opportunity, sometimes in the name of really brotherhood and peace, you know, right? I mean, we don't get to open borders in the same way, but there's a very broad shared commitment. Now, I think it's undeniable that in the last decade, that from a point of view of politics, that is a challenging commitment to hold. Um, uh, I think it's in some places, particularly relatively wealthy and relatively uh, economically integrated with the world parts of the economy. This is actually world winner. But in a lot of places, it's uh, it's it doesn't help your case if you're a politician and you want to defend this. Um, and when uh, non-liberals are willing to politicize it, uh, as they've been willing to do successfully in the last decade, it raises genuine political problems for liberals. But when you think through, as you just said, look, um, what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is closed borders. Well, that has all kinds of effects that requires non-trivial policy and ideological commitments that, um, when you start thinking about it, are actually rather uh, unattractive. I'll give a few very different kind of examples. Uh, at generally means not just politicizing the borders, but politicizing, as uh, Jacob Levy and uh, Chandran Kukatas have emphasized, also the interior of a country, because immigration and immigrants can show up pretty much everywhere, right? So you give police powers to the state in all kinds of ways in order to keep people out. And um, at the risk of uh, civil rights, but also very uh, bread and butter uh, inter social interactions. Um, a lot of, uh, in Europe, this is not very common, a lot of state functionaries and university and uh, high school teachers now have to inform and, and physicians have to inform the state if they have an illegal immigrant or alien in their classroom or in their uh, treating them as patients. So rather than uh, their professional duty of care, they have to actually uh, do something other than that um, um, at the point of contact. Right. So that's one, one set of effects. The other set of effects is that 
nearly always the people that vote for uh, immigration control also like social welfare for the elderly in one way or another, whether being cheap, uh, cheap uh, uh health care or cheap social care or uh, various benefits. But all of those benefits become much harder to pay if there's not immigrants to supply the workforce and the uh, uh, and also the tax revenue uh, to uh, to subsidize this. Um, most uh, welfare states in the world are are structured like a like a pyramid the young and the newcomers end up paying for the elderly um moment you do immigration controls you really undermine um bread and butter welfare state practices which are all designed around growth in various ways um um you undermine trade and the economy, uh, as you, you probably know or remember, I split my time between England and, and Holland. And while the f total meltdown disaster that some critics of Brexit warned against didn't happen, the British economy is really suffering because of the import and export barriers to Europe. That's quite noticeable. Uh, it's, uh, uh, products don't show up in supermarkets. I mean, really, a kind of very basic things that you uh, uh, delays in getting uh, care have grown. So there's all kinds of uh, because uh, European nurses and physicians just left. Um, so there are these all these kind of side effects that when you impose a kind of even partial isolation, that all these other things happen that you perhaps won't like. But now when we look at the post-liberal theorizing, they don't get to the point where they then, then explain, okay, what's the next step? And we see this, I think, that up until now, in the last decade, we haven't had a post-liberal movement that's really been successful once they've grabbed power. Um, um, because it's one thing to criticize the status quo, it's another thing to become the new status quo yourself. And so um, um, if that doesn't happen, then I do worry that post-liberalism will end up just becoming power for its own sake and uh, or or uh, spectacular, um, what's the phrase, that it will appeal to ever more spectacular instances of ruling. Um, and that's, yeah, that leads to fascism and other bad, bad things. Right. And actually, that's an excellent place to take our break before we jump into pretty much exactly that. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Eric Schleser today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. 
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Eric Schleser today. Eric, I think the first half was great. We talked about sort of, let's call it like, you know, you. current things that are happening in post-liberal theories, thoughts, intellectual spheres, and so on. We sort of talked about how there's a lot of different angles people come at post-liberalism. Right at the tail end of, uh, of our first half, you, you were just talking about, uh, you know, there's a danger that these types of approaches, no matter what angle they come from, uh, end up power for the sake of power, fascism, absolutism, authoritarianism, that kind of thing. Um, and that actually pivots nicely into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, and this, and again, I have no way to prove this. It's just sort of an observation I want to throw out there to you. I'm actually worried personally about what I sort of view as when it comes to that exact point, a bit of sort of that generational dinner table consensus and where that's going. And let me tell you what I, what I mean by that. Outside of my immediate family over the past holidays, I had a lot of opportunity to talk to different people, of course, over Christmas, New Year's, and so on. And I have to say, I'm surprised at the amount of people, excluding the older folks that by default, you know, with the post-World War II collective memory are going to talk about liberal democracy and all that kind of stuff. I'm surprised at the amount of young people in, you know, let's say between 25 and 40 years old, just to put a thumb on it, that are anywhere between actually committed through things they've read to a sort of post-liberal train of thought, whether they'd call it that or not. Or on the other hand, just simply, they don't know how to put their thumb on it, but they know whatever's happening now. If it's liberalism, they don't feel like it's working. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's a if you have any thoughts on that too, but there, I think there's also a generational aspect at play here for various reasons, but I, I've sort of noticed it and that worries me a little bit. No, I think uh, I think you have every reason to be worried. Um, so, um, uh, and like you, this is anecdotal evidence, but it's also widely shared, and it connects to this business about uh, kids living at home. But you know, I I, uh, I I I I teach in a state university, and my students are the uh, upper middle class in Holland. But outside of Holland, they're really the upwardly mobile, what I call aspirational middle class of Europe, particularly uh, Central and Eastern Europe. We are a very cheap university, but we're reasonably well run. And so a lot of kids from other parts of Europe are coming to Holland to study despite the high housing prices as and because their parents cannot afford them to send them to Harvard or Princeton or Oxford, they end up coming to Amsterdam. And one thing that is really very striking, you know, and I've been in universities for 30 years, that the politically vocal students that I have are fundamentally pessimistic. They do not believe that change is possible. Um, if they're um, uh, if they're uh, idealists, they tend to be environmentalists who are expecting global catastrophe. If they're not idealists, they're um, they're uh, uh, if they are idealists and they're not focused on the environment, they're very deep pessimists, and the rest are either very pragmatic, what I might call uh, opportunist. And that right. also means that they're willing to be um, very skeptical about any moral defense of the status quo. Um, now, uh, unlike uh, what American news media say, I don't see a epidemic of uh, of of 
political intolerance on campuses. Um, I really, there are students who role play that, but on the whole, what I see is a real kind of uh, uh, lack of utopian and lack of optimism about even the possibility of change. And that, I think, does feed into um, a, a, a genuine lack of doubt about the social and political institutions that we have, and that opens the door to uh, radical alternatives. Um, and I think uh, there are also good reasons for this. Um, the, the recovery from the financial crisis uh, really uh, benefit in a long 15 years since, and a lot of places did not feed into the pocketbooks of the, let's call it middle class. Um, right. um, where it does, it's usually through parents who very cleverly manage to get a bit of real estate or right. uh, into the hands of grandchildren or, or, or children. Yeah. Um, but that's, of course, itself part of the insidiousness because people notice this about their friends. Um, and uh, so I think um, um, uh, housing prices in cities, which is where the young people end up being, just is a gigantic problem all over, uh, let's call it uh, existing liberal democracies. And it's partially uh, a problem because we've made housing a mechanism for our pensions. Yep. But the problem with that is, is that you create another pyramid where um, if housing prices have to keep going up to secure our pensions, then somebody else's potential house is getting much more expensive. And if income is not keeping up with that, um, you know, we've had a period of genuine inflation as well. That really creates a very toxic generational dynamic of a sort that you're also putting your finger on. Now, in America, libertarians will immediately say, uh, well, that means that we have to remove um, um, uh, barriers to new housing. And I certainly agree with that. But if it's a pyramid structure, that's not sufficient to solve the problem. Of course, this creates a terrible dilemma for politicians because nobody in their right mind wants to attack uh, housing as a mechanism for pensions because that's their best, that's, their, that's the wealthiest, most mobilized, potentially most mobilized group of voters out there, right? Yeah. So... Um, uh, there are, uh, so this is a case where <clears throat> decisions made 70, 80 years ago on how to organize yeah. the economy, everybody yes. have their own house, and we're going to use that as a mechanism for secure old age. That's really locked in a whole set of perverse generational um, um, uh, social economic structures mm -hmm. that feed into anger and frustration um, uh, among your friends and among my students. Now, often people won't say it in my technocratic may, oh, we need to reform the housing system so that I 
um, we have to take away other people's pensions. Rather, people will say, uh, I want cheap housing, or let's not give housing to immigrants, or let's not give housing to asylum right. seekers, or in, uh, in Holland, that's very common now, or to even foreign students. Um, they're all, you know, jumping the queue, right? And so then we get into politics of zero sum, where the right. underlying structural problem, namely that we've uh, backed herself into this really bizarre pension scheme, um, doesn't get tackled. And we have all these ad hoc, knowingly false, uh, you know, fake solutions. And I think that generates yep. a desire for somebody to take charge or for an alternative approach to be tried out where drastic measures are, are, are thinkable. Um, and so I do think, um, um, there are real structural features in our lives that are hard to politicize in a way that um, is winnable and that cause then liberals to be on the defensive. And now the interesting thing is very few liberals would be willing to fight to the death to defend housing as a mechanism for pensions, right? I, I don't think um, uh, I know any liberal that actually believes that this is a good thing. Right. But insofar as liberalism is associated with the status quo and insofar as liberalism is associated with you know, defending property rights or uh, defending uh, uh, care for the elderly and uh, more left liberalism, right? This kind of thing becomes zero sum. Um, and um, so I do think there are um, genuine problems in our, this is just an example, that are in our, our political structure where we have very few good solutions. And so, and also that we've been muddling through for generation now, that I think that really does generate a dangerous cocktail for opportunistic uh, uh, political entrepreneurs to say, hey, yep. if you give me free hat, um, if you give me a free hat, I will solve this problem for you. Yeah. Um, and since the present politicians cannot solve this problem, that actually, uh, you know, uh, seems attractive then. Yeah. And I think so that's just one example. Yeah. And I think it's a great example. I'm glad we sort of touched into this cultural generational aspect of the conversation too, because, you know, out, outside of people that spend most of their time, you know, intellectualizing about these issues specifically, at least again, I've noticed like even in my own, and this is a small example, my own mm. life experience, like if we cast ourselves back to sort of, let's just talk about early 2000s, turn of the millennium type culture. Like if I was in high school at that time, you know, there seemed to be a cultural dynamic there that I even think back and observe that from a Canadian perspective, there still was that sort of idea that at some point you're going to go off and do something in your life, get your own little, little or medium sized plot of land, do your thing, have a small house, big house, medium house. Yes. Some people are rich. Some people don't have as much, but everyone in Canada is going to get their good old house and their own plot to save for themselves yeah. in life. You talk to people even just, I feel like I was at the tail end of that. Cause you talk to people even just five years younger than me. And it's like the most of the generational frustration is people feel like they completely missed that boat. And as you said, a lot of them politically, in my anecdotal observation, are actually genuinely looking for answers, but are more than willing to give someone, like you said, that that free hand. Okay, you go fix it. And that I think yeah. is a huge issue. Um, yeah. you 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 also brought brought up 
uh, liberals on the defensive. And that's kind of the next pillar I wanted to, to get into, which is one thing I think is a little problematic is that I think, and I'm going to see if I can bridge the gap between our previous neoliberal conversation and this. So let's see if I can do it artfully, which is that I think what you end up having is because uh, a, a genuine committed lowercase l liberal will be put on the defensive in conversation before they get to the meat of liberalism, which I think there's a lot to be said for that. A, a lot of folks, unfortunately, get distracted on the surface. And I, I just see them running around defending different aspects of, you know, state capitalism, the last 30 years of some of the things we talked about neoliberalism last conversation from a liberal perspective, I think that's actually a disastrous recipe too. I, I don't think running around defending, um, you know, uh, the, the way state capitalism has gone in every avenue is the right way to answer these critiques. That's another thing I think is going to be a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think uh, it's a bit boring because I think we agree on this. Um, <laughs> but um, um, I tend to think of... Uh, the status quo in many ways as deeply illiberal and that um, yep. insofar as liberalism is a project, it's very much unfinished and still we haven't actually thought through all the things that we need to do in order mm -hmm. to get it right, right? So from my yes. point of view, it's it's actually a relatively newish experiment in many ways. Um Having said that, uh, uh, and this is where to also bring it a bit full circle to the beginning of our conversation, the post-liberals want to say, we had our chance, now let's move on, right? So um, um, so I think uh, the, good, the good news is I do think that uh, liberalism does have structural things going for itself, um, um, some of which are... Um, uh, are, are perhaps in tension, but I think there are two, two or three very uh, good things in liberalism that even post-liberals recognize. Number one, uh, market economies uh, are fairly good at distributing and also generating wealth and new technologies, and there are a whole bunch of institutions that in order to have that, that also facilitate at least some aspects of liberalism. That's one part. The other part is, is that actually, by and large, uh, most people uh, really like a lot of the individual emancipation that liberalism has generated. So even hardcore uh, you know, religious conservatives, um, when you look at who leads them, it's often fantastically eloquent women who wouldn't want to be put back into, you know, the household uh, and having no voice and, you know, right. and, and instantiating Gilead, right? So I think there has been uh, both an emancipation uh partially successful and incomplete, but uh, uh, emancipation in gender and sex relations, and also in more general meaningful life uh, uh, experimentation. Um, and I think uh, the fact that there are so many people willing to politicize trans issues actually is evidence for that, because that's kind of like a, uh, from the perspective of, uh, you know, the past, an unimaginable new 
you know, new territory. But just like people got used to and got used to rather quickly to gay marriage, now that we're actually having the public conversation about trans issues, I think in a lot of places, the very same young people that you're talking to that are willing to give the strong man a chance don't want that strong man to take away um, individual life choices that are very meaningful, perhaps even quite spiritual to them. What they want is drastic solutions to particular problems that actually are problems that really involve keeping up with the Joneses and getting yeah. ahead. And, and so I think... In many, and so, in fact, uh, we see this in Europe especially, and I think in Canada too, but much less in, in the United States, that a lot of the most uh, vocal post-liberals are also people that are most, uh, at least they claim this, I don't think it's always sincere, most willing to defend gay rights as being part of the French or Dutch way now. Um, whereas, you know, 40 years ago, a political right would never have gone down that route. They would have gone maybe down the route of like, uh, I mean, European right. Uh, they would have said, well, let's not talk about it, right, and sort of practically tolerate it. But they wouldn't make it part of the national identity, which is really what's happened in Holland is, is that uh, post-liberal um, anti-cosmopolitans are willing to claim that gay marriage is an intrinsic part of the Dutch national identity, right? For American viewers, that's like perhaps a step too far to imagine. But in Europe, this is actually quite normal thing to say now. Um, and so I think... Um, Liberalism, even in its imperfections and lack of success, has moved the goalposts to what people expect and want from their lives, such that when... um, So I do think that there are elements of our social universe that will also... uh, allow liberals to make social and political comebacks um, as we start thinking about, okay, we should maybe stop having a perspective of of thinking that power comes naturally to liberalism or that liberalism naturally survives. We we have to think of it itself as a kind of social movement and willing to uh, organize politically. Um, And that means also taking on a lot of the arguments and rhetoric of, of, of post-liberals. Now, as you can tell, I myself am very uneasy to label every post-liberal immediately a fascist and to label every post-liberal immediately an authoritarian. Right. I think I think uh, because of the outsized presence of Trump, uh, we forget that a mm-hmm. lot of post-liberals uh, actually are, in their own way, rather committed Democrats. Yeah. Um, and so now their understanding of democracy is not liberal democracy, right? It might be pure majoritarianism of sorts. It might be the mass rules. I mean, so there are all kinds of, from my perspective, rather dangerous elements in that. But um, um, I think we, um, uh, just like uh, liberals recognize that liberalism is a very broad tent, um, when we start arguing with post-liberals, I think it's personally a tactical mistake to label every one of them individually uh, a fascist, in part because it's made it harder (laughs) to actually 
point out to genuine fascists as fascists, because if you've labeled everybody a fascist, it's very hard to say, well, actually, this fascism is worse than that fascism. Well, at some point, that becomes it's it's become self-defeating. And I think your anecdotal evidence that people are willing to entertain it again also kind of implies that, because um, if you've used a term in order to uh, you also domesticate it if you overuse it. And I think that's also happened here. Yes, yes. And if I may add, because you said tactical mistake, I and I'll reemphasize, if I, if I may add to that list, I think another tactical mistake is, is uh, something you touched on before, and we both did, but I want to reemphasize it, which is, I, I, you know, I can't say it enough, but for someone who feels like a, a genuine committed liberal, liberal without adjectives, if you will, um, that, you know, again, being very careful about not being sucked into uh, defending the status quo and a, a certain type of rhetorical conservatism that ends up helping defend sort of um, uh, like, as you said, various elements of the current system that I think a genuine lowercase l liberal should see is, is illiberal. And I meant conservative just for the record in that way, in a temporal yeah. sense, not a political yeah. sense. Like you end up, yeah. uh, you know, conserving, so, uh, wanting to defend or conserve what's there. But I think liberals still have a project, as you were saying, in looking at the current order and also saying, what the heck's wrong with it? I've seen way too many liberals, in, in my opinion, in surface level conversations, just feel it's their job to defend the status quo right from you know, corporate law and commercial law through to anything else that's there. And I think that's going to be problematic. Yeah, I think I think um, uh, part of the issue here is uh, let's uh, let's put this in a way that uh, liberals don't like to talk about. Part of the issue here is, is what what happens in American empire. America is a two party system. And so there it's incredibly hard to oppose if you have opponents, not to be driven into defense of the status quo if you're right. in a two-party uh, uh, constant uh, debate. And if most liberals are now in a democratic party, which is actually fairly recent uh, phenomena, if we think of liberalism as a broad tent, um, then it becomes natural to become kind of uh, political hacks and defending if the Democratic Party is in power of, or if you understand the American Constitution as a democratic stru- a liberal structure, which it really isn't, um, then, um, um, you know, in, in virtue of the fact that it's two parties, you're rather automatically get sucked into it. We had to give a low-level but fresh example. Um, it was really awful people who went after Claudine Gay in the last few weeks. Uh, none of the political activists who took her down are people one ought to admire. But because it was them going after Claudine Gay, um, a lot of People who normally would say plagiarism is plagiarism started to hem and haw and give a whole kind of account of why, you know, in this case, it wasn't plagiarism. I think something like that happens in the political dynamic, particularly uh, emanating from America. And if I can add a pet, pet, uh, pet theory, one thing that I think we underestimate is, is because we're in American empire, I think Canadians and people in Holland underestimated less, is that we also kind of role play what the Americans are doing. So it's not just the soft power of American films and American media and American intellectual trendsetters and American, you know, intellectual debates that emanating out. But there also this is kind of weird role playing that um, we take on the 
cultural and political dynamics of American political factionalism. In political yeah. systems where there is no need for, uh, you know, where there is no two-party system, that's generally an irrational thing to do when it comes to yes. politics, because uh, lots of European and in different ways, Canada too, the political coalitions and the political uh, space for how people relate to each other is more complex than when it's mm -hmm. just two parties alternating with each other. Yes. I think that's a so very think, exciting point, actually. Yeah. So I think this dynamic that you point out can be explained in certain political contexts. Although there, as I agree with you, one shouldn't do it. But at least it can be sociologically like it's sort of kind of rational to defend your side and to see another side as a you know political opponent. Uh, but in other contexts, uh, it's completely irrational. But I think because of the American, let's call it soft imperial structure, uh, I see a lot of people role play this um, um, elsewhere. And I think you know, being on a university campus, I see my own students being much more familiar, say, with American civil rights uh, practices and rhetoric, both pro and con, than the Dutch or European um, culturally more or less simultaneous yeah. experiences. Yeah. So, um, and and that's completely understandable, but it also is very weird because in many ways, there are resources and debates locally and internally that allow you to avoid the cul-de-sac that I think a two-party system generates. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, for instance, uh, you know, you and I tend to agree that a two-party system generates certain kind of rents. And so it incentivizes being, in, you know, for an intellectual and a nerd who follows politics very intensely, it really incentivizes taking sides. But yeah. if you're in a system where there are like seven or eight options, actually trying to be impartial is also a, a position to be to occupy, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, much more rational to do that and also much more doable. So I think um, 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 from the perspective of liberalism, I think it's an incomplete project. Uh, there's a lot of state violence that liberals of all stripes abhor. And um, um when critics of the status quo have a point, I actually think uh, 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 learn from them and run with them if when you can, but don't run into the arms of a strong man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Or don't run into don't run into disenfranchisement programs or you know those kind of solutions. Yeah, I think your point about you know on the one hand you sort of you know just determine it you have like political economic empire if you will, but on the other hand there's almost like this social cultural empire or, or sort of vortex or whatever you want to call it. I think that's excellent. I, I won't spend too much time on this, but I, I did just want to get points. I don't want to be too boring about it, but I think that's. Some you kind of put into words something I've been feeling, for example, about the Canadian scene in the last two or three years, which I'm obviously much more intimately intimately familiar with than any other one. Like on the personal side, I've sort of discovered in the last two or three years that there's been a lot of just in my own backyard political history reading that I should be doing about this country because I live here. That's not not only quite interesting, but in some ways I will go so far as to say more interesting than some of the things that I've been uh, reading about in the United States over and over. Secondly. Mm -hmm. Um, the current political scene 
you know, 10 years ago, you could hear a lot of talk uh, on all sides of the political spectrum in Canada, many parties about, you know, regardless of what the Americans or other folks are doing culturally, you know, we have our own parliamentary democracy system. It stands alone. We're over here. Forget that. Mm-hmm. Politicians in our country have been dangerously, for various different reasons, importing lots of kinds of rhetoric, terms, ways of division among people here. You know, that's very American as the best adjective. And and if you're a lowercase l liberal in Canada, you should look at that as also sort of that that's too forget about Canada or any of that kind of national discussion. That's to like liberalism's detriment in a sense. Uh, you yes. know, we, we used to talk about, you know, one issue that I've been paying a lot of attention to for uh, both policy wonk reasons and my own vested interest reasons is, you know, uh, 10 years ago, we used to talk about, you know, uh, Canadian firearms culture as, you know, hunters, target shooters, so on. You wouldn't even hear much about anything to do with the United States in that. And there's, you know, legal firearms ownership here and it's its own thing. But, you know, now all of a sudden in the last two years, we're talking about NRA style politics, uh, you know, shootings, all this kind of stuff that and it's all resonating from what's happening in the United States. And I think yeah. that's been detrimental, not only in that issue, but rhetorically. So all that to say, I didn't want to spend too much time on that, but I actually think you hit on something very important to our broader discussion about, you know, almost lowercase l liberalism in that way about also that this cultural aspect too in that vortex you can get sucked into right and, and, it, and uh i actually just uh, i i the case of uh firearms is actually of rather important to me because one of the really striking things if you look at most liberal bread and butter liberal democracies uh living in them is just incredibly safe from the perspective of world history, from the perspective of their own history, it's just unbelievable how rarely a Canadian or Dutch person will encounter, um, you know, serious damage in their lives relative to most of history. That's not true for Americans. There are Americans who live lives like Canadians and Europeans do, um, wealthy ones do, but on the whole, they encounter violence in ways that most um, Canadians and Europeans don't. Mm -hmm. Um, But in virtue of this weird cultural phenomena, you get these NRA-style debates in Canada and also uh, 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 tough-on-crime rhetoric in all kinds of European places that have a completely... Uh, strains Erzat's relationship with social reality because they're completely uh, transformed by what uh, uh, I hate to break the news to you, Alex, far more popular podcasters and Tic Tac dividers, uh, entrepreneurs than you, managed to get kids and adults to like take yes. on these vibes, it's, I can't put it in a different terminology, that really emanate from a social reality where even there yes. it probably, you know, has a very tenuous connection with like underlying data, but at least mm-hmm. it's not totally fantasy. But um, uh, without wanting to belittle any police violence in Canada or in Holland, it's orders of magnitude less lethal than it is in the United States, yeah. right? It's like it's like completely different. But uh, so 
Um, and so it also, but it also impacts, I think, well-meaning uh, civil rights types, uh, people who then bring a frame, uh, you know, a very noble frame uh, out of North America, out of United States debates into these other contexts. Yep. People jump on the bandwagon and it makes for very strange policy because Yes. And and like you and I both are the last people to say that Canada and Netherlands are 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 unproblematic societies, but the problems that we have are not the same as what uh these cultural entrepreneurs and political entrepreneurs uh tell us they are based on an American set exactly. of dynamics. And that's I think uh if you care about where politics is going is very hard to fight against i think just generally yeah and there's actually a lot a lot we can talk about there and um and and uh maybe we'll have another conversation about that another time but i am unfortunately forced to also manage the clock as the person running the show here so i am gonna I'm move happy. A, <laughs> i am i am gonna move us to our formal wrap-up though um so eric let me just say we have talked about a lot and i think we went down a lot of avenues in this post this conversation about post-liberalism um so it's a little unfair to say bring everything full circle and put a finer point on it but but if you if you could i mean what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether post-liberalism is already here and how we should be thinking about post-liberalism and and so on in other words if you wanted someone to take away a one or two or a few things from our discussion. What did we really explore today? What, what do you think would be the main takeaways? Um, can I, I, I want to put this in terms that I haven't put it yet. And so if you think I'm not answering your question, we can retake, we could cut this out and retake it uh, another time. But uh, when, when Fukuyama wrote his essay about the end of history, he pointed out in a kind of side comment that... Um, um, the end of history is a real thing. We all agree on fundamental shared values. But if there is a political system that rejects those values and is seen to succeed, then history will be reopened again. He actually predicts that. And he predicts that in particular about Russia and kind of uh, Russian um the likely failure of perestroika. And he actually predicts, I really, if you go back to that essay, it's quite amazing. He predicts Russian fascism. And what is, uh, I think, the important point he recognizes is, is that where non-liberals, and this is to try to make it full circle, where post-liberals perceive liberal vulnerability and they succeed at exploiting that politically, they give hope to um, post liberals everywhere that this is possible, and they start tactically supporting each other. We've seen this both at the level of like political practice and meddling in each other's elections, but also at the level of political rhetoric and where there's a sense where post liberals recognize who their common enemies are and how to help each other. I think. Uh, in so, and the mistake that you and I both agree on is then to say, okay, let's just defend the status quo. Uh, but I do think what uh, a a better response is that liberals have to be willing to work with each other in recognizing that there are some very important shared values. Um, 
moral equality, respect for the law, respect for democratic um, political practices, a kind of cosmopolitanism, um, that uh, we have to be willing to support each other in defending those. But also, and this is something that you and I, I think take very seriously, and also rearticulating and rediscovering, perhaps for the first time, what liberalism is really about. And um, yeah, that means also a kind of uh, uh, intellectual humility because it requires a willingness to learn from mistakes um, and to think about, okay, what are the slogans that I've been echoing for perhaps years? What do they really mean to young people? Now, for me, that's easy because I'm really around uh, students a lot. And you could tell in students' reactions rather quickly if you could engage them or not. Now, I don't preach liberalism in my classes, but I listen to what they say. And what I'm hearing is indeed a willingness to explore alternatives. And I think in a way, if liberalism is ex an experimental life, and I think you and I agree about this, if I remember the last conversation, that also means trusting young people to figure things out in new ways, but then reminding them that there are also potential dangers if they put their faith in solutions that, you know, violate things that I think are actually rather intuitive to them. So let me stop there. No, I, and I actually think that did answer the question very well. And I think that's an excellent place to leave thank it. You. And I think that leaves people with a lot to think about. So let me say, Eric Schleser, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. Thank you. I'll be curious to hear what your, uh, what your listeners have to say about this one, Alex. And thank you for your time. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seguin. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye.